I asked you to think of a hero of faith, someone from the scriptures, aside from the Lord, who really just shows you what it means to have faith, that shows you what it is to be faithful, who, who, who springs to mind? Probably a lot of us would think of Abraham, often talked about in connection with faith. Others might be thinking of David running to fight a warrior giant armed with nothing but a sling and some rocks. Others might think of someone like Mary, who after she's been told by an angel that you are miraculously going to have a son and he will be called the son of the Most High, responds, may it be according to what you say. And there's so many others we could think of. We think of someone like Elijah as fire comes down from heaven consuming his sacrifice. We think of Joshua commanding the sun to stand still in the sky. Maybe even someone like Peter getting out of a boat and starting to walk on water. I know that he sinks after a while, but dry Peter is who I'm talking about in that example. <laughs> and, and I don't take anything away from his incredible faith to even get out of the boat. You may have thought of some of these, and there's so many others you could have thought about. The scripture is full of individuals, men and women, that have incredible faith. But there could be one person, the person we'll talk about tonight, that you might not have thought of right away. Because he's not someone we usually bring up when we talk about the heroes of faith. And I suggest tonight that the writer of Hebrews would say, well, that's a mistake. Because you need to talk about this guy when you talk about faith. In fact, the writer of Hebrews through the Spirit, when he wanted to write a full chapter of the book all about faithful people, started with Abel. The writer of Hebrews, when wanting to describe, I'm going to tell you about faithful people. I'm going to tell you the things that they did. He started here by faith. Abel, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. We're going to turn over and read the narrative account of Abel's life in just a moment. You'll find it in Genesis chapter 4, and I invite you to open your Bible and turn with me as we go over there. As we do so, allow me to say welcome. It's great to be with everyone tonight. It's always wonderful to be in the Word together, to be enriched by it, and to learn from it. I'm excited to study with you a little bit this evening. We can read about Abel and his brother Cain, which we really never mention Abel without his brother Cain and Abel. They just they go together. We talk about them together. Uh, and in this, this account in Genesis 4, 
they are mentioned here together as well. Let's read it, and then we'll, then we'll have some comments about this first part. Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's Abel? Your brother, he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now we read that story, and it is very familiar to us. Um, chronologically speaking, in the Bible, I mean, it's the third story. We have the account of the creation, we have the account of Adam and Eve sinning, and then we come to this story in Genesis. We know this story from a young age, and we may be tempted at times, if we read this story, to think, okay, who is this story really about? And as pun reading it, it sure sounds like it's about Cain primarily. Cain is introduced first. He shows up first. He's the first kind of the one born. Abel shows up after him. But we're introduced in this part that Cain is born to Adam and Eve. Um, Cain lasts the entirety of the story, even from what we read, and it'll go on a little further if we kept reading. Cain will go do some other things. He'll have start his own family. He'll go build a city. His story kind of continues on. Abel leaves the story, not of his own uh, will, but he's gone after a little while. Uh, Abel never says anything that's recorded for us you know, in this story. We actually have an account where Cain is having dialogue, talking to God back and forth, but it sure sounds like Cain might kind of be the main character of this story, but I think the Hebrew writer would tell us that's a misreading. That's a mistake. When we, when we look at Genesis 4, 1 through 12, um, we like to focus on Cain. And why is that? We'll get, we'll get back to the Hebrew writer in a second, but why is it? Because I think we really like to think about what did Cain do wrong? It is fascinating. What did he do wrong? They both offered sacrifices, and the scripture tells us they're different, uh, they've got different vocations. You know, they do different things, 
and they both bring sacrifices representative of what they do. Abel from his flocks, Cain from his produce. And so this can fascinate us at times. What did Cain do wrong? Did he bring the wrong materials? You know, we say that, you know, God wanted sheep. Maybe we think that. Now, this is before the law of Moses has been given, obviously, but we'll, later in Scripture, God will give specific instructions about the types of sacrifices he wants the children of Israel to bring, and they often are animals. They often are lambs. So we wonder, well, did he bring the wrong thing? Or Abel brings a lamb like he was supposed to, and, and Cain brought some cabbage or carrots, whatever he had been growing, and so that's why he was not accepted. And the answer to that question is, maybe, I don't know. Was it the wrong quality? Now, we can even read in here, there, there's a few words here. We see that Abel brings the, the firstborn of his flocks, and then it just kind of says, and Cain also brought some things. And so we might wonder, oh, Cain did not bring the best. Well, this is not really stated in the scripture, but we might surmise Cain did not bring the best of what he had been blessed with. Abel brought the best. Cain didn't. Is that what was wrong with his offering? And the answer to that question is, maybe, I don't know. Was it the wrong procedure, though? Maybe this was the wrong procedure. We can read other stories where men attempted to offer sacrifices to the Lord, but did it in a way that he had asked them or commanded them, I should say, not to do it. You think of Nadab and Abihu, who brought strange fire to the Lord, offering a sacrifice in a way that he, he said not to do it. Is this what Cain did? Again, the answer is maybe, we don't know. Was it the wrong timing? Was, he, was the offering supposed to be offered on a certain day at a certain time? Abel did it at that time, and Cain just did it whenever he got around to it. You are probably, probably noticing a trend here. <coughs> I don't know, because the Scripture doesn't tell us. Other than with what we read in Hebrews 4, the Scripture tells us, that Cain's offering was not offered by faith. Whatever it was that he did or did not do, he lacked the faith that Abel had when he offered his sacrifice. <coughs> Excuse me. In Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrew writer wants to focus on this. And he starts with this expression, by faith, he obeyed. By faith, Abel offered a sacrifice, but I'm using that point as by faith, he obeyed. Turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Abel is presented as the brother to pay attention to, according to the Hebrew writer. Yes, Cain takes up more of the, the account, more of the narrative, if you want to say that. But Hebrew, the author of Hebrews says, Abel is the one you need to pay attention to. And you need to pay attention to his faith. 
because his faith is what separated him from Cain. And we don't know the particulars. We may never know the fine details of what happened other than Cain lacked the faith that Abel had in his offering. And with what the scripture tells us about faith, we can surmise a few other things. Faith leads to obedience. True faith does. But obedience requires a command. And Romans 10, 17 explains the connection between faith and obedience in many ways. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ or the word of God, depending on your translation there. To obey, you have to be told what to do. And to have faith in your obedience, you have to be told what to do so we can understand while not explained to us, God told Abel what was expected of him. God told Cain what was expected of him. Abel had the faith to obey what he was told, and Cain, for whatever reason, did not in that account that we read. And faith is needed when obeying seems hard. For whatever reason, and we don't know, Cain found the sacrifice to be too hard. He found it too difficult to obey what God had told him when it came to his sacrifice. And we don't know what it was. We don't necessarily know why it was, but he lacked the faith to follow what God had said. And that's a lesson for us. There are times when obeying is hard. Because obeying might mean doing something I would not have chosen to do of my own cognition. Obeying might mean I'm going to be affected in a way that I don't really enjoy being affected in that kind of way. Depending what it is, obeying can be hard for us. Jesus was often telling the disciples how important faith was. Uh, when it came to obeying and when it came to doing things he had told them to do. We started our service tonight with a scripture reading in Luke 17, verses 3 3 through 6. I'll I'll read it one more time for us. Pay attention to yourselves, Jesus says to the disciples. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And hearing that, hearing that command from Jesus, the disciples are bowled over and they say, that's impossible. Increase our faith. We could never do that as we are right now. We need way more faith to be able to do something like that. To forgive someone seven times in the same day, increase our faith. It's like they can't even believe what they're hearing. And Jesus' response turns that on them. He says, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, if you had the smallest amount of faith, and he uses this imagery, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I do not believe Jesus is just changing the subject here and saying, well, I'm done talking about forgiving people. Actually, I'm going to talk to you about what you can do with trees now if you had faith. Jesus is using this expression as he uses many different times 
in his time with the disciples on earth, where he says, you could, if you had a little bit of faith, you could say to this tree, be uprooted and go over here. You could say to mountains, come up and go over here. If you had any faith, you could do these things that seem impossible that you're commanded to do. And I don't think Jesus is saying, well, if you just had faith that it would work, disciples, you could just walk around saying the trees and mountains just pop up and go other places. I think Jesus is saying to them, if I told you I wanted this tree and this mountain moved, if you knew that was the will of God and you had faith that he was commanding you to do that, then you could do those things. But how much more when you hear that it's God's will to forgive your brother seven times in a day? Does that seem impossible to you? Jesus says, if you had the smallest amount of faith, you could do that impossible thing. It's not too hard. Think about Elijah. The example of Elijah is a fascinating and difficult to grasp example when we think about prayer and faith and doing hard things. James writes about Elijah in his letter. In the fifth chapter, James writes in verse 15, saying, The prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he goes on. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is a tough passage because James says, Elijah was just like us. He was a man with a nature like ours, which is hard to wrap our head around because we read about Elijah, and he seems like a giant. The stuff that he does and his intense faith and the way that he champions the cause of God. And we say, Elijah, he's bigger than me. He's, he's better than me. And yet James is saying, Elijah was like us. But look what he did because he had faith. Now, granted, I'm not saying we can, in faith, go out and say, it's not going to rain for three years. Because when we read the account in 1 Kings 17, we're told that the word comes to Elijah. He takes it to Ahab and says, hear the word of the Lord. It shall not rain until by my mouth, Elijah says. God told me. I'm going to decide or I'm going to speak it back when it's going to rain again. And then later in that account, God then will tell Elijah, okay, it's time for it to rain again. And yet Elijah goes and prays for it to rain again. So God is still in control of the timing of this. But God tells Elijah, you're going to cause it to stop raining, Elijah. And then you're going to cause it to start up again. I'll tell you when. And, and James says that he prayed that every day when it, was, when it was time for there to be no rain. You know, we, we talked about mountains being plucked up and trees being cast across and thrown into the sea. This is in that realm. These incredible, this astronomical thing Elijah is able to faithfully pray for because he believes God has the power to do it and he believes God to, has told him to do it. 
Could he have prayed that? Would, it have, uh, would we have drought without Elijah's extreme faith? Faith is needed when obeying seems hard. And the sacrifice might have seemed hard for Abel too. And yet his faith allows him to obey. And the Hebrew writer is very interested in faith in chapter 11. It is the topic that the writer is really hammering home. And he tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. In verse 6, the first thing Abel can really show us about faith, can tell us about faith, is that it will lead to obedience. By faith, Abel obeyed. And I think a lot of us hear that, and we, a lot of us, if we've been raised in the pews or familiar with the scripture, we would say, I feel good about that one. That's in line with my thinking, even though it's hard, I want to obey, and I like that point. The next thing Abel, Abel will teach us about faith is harder. Because the next thing he teaches us about faith is this. In faith, he died. Being a faithful, righteous person commended by God, and he dies. He dies violently. He's killed by his brother. That's not one we like to wrap our arms around very much probably when we think about faith. That's not a concept that a lot of those in the world who would like to talk about faith, not from a scriptural viewpoint, but from with earthly wisdom, might not want to bring up. It can be popular for those to say, if you have faith, every door will be opened for you. Your life will change for the better. You will be anointed. You are chosen. And nothing bad will happen to you once you turn your life over to Jesus in faith. And that's simply not in line with what we see in God's word. We are not promised that a faithful life will always be an easy one or a happy one or one without pain, one without loss or difficulty. And Abel's life can attest to that very clearly to us. He lived righteously, and it cost him his life. And Jesus never pulls any punches when he talks about this with his disciples, about what it will mean to pattern our lives in faith after his, Jesus never skirts that issue, or never tries to change the subject. Jesus always tells us what that will mean. In John 3, starting at verse 19, he says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. This is, this is John 3. I'm sorry. So this is John writing here. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So in John's gospel, John early on sets the stage for that. that This will be a theme of his gospel. That those who like the dark, they hate the light because the light exposes the dark. They hate those who are in 
the light. And Jesus reiterates this in John 15 as he is teaching his disciples about what life will be like as a disciple. In John 15, starting in verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. And Jesus explains it so clearly that the world hated him. And it will hate faithful people who try and live like him. One other verse to just hammer this point home. 1 John 3, verse 12. Here John, in his letter, and speaking about kind of our topic tonight, admonishes those reading the letter, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Far from us being promised that we will have a very easy, luxurious life if we try to live in faith. In fact, we are promised otherwise. We are promised that those who are not in Christ, those who are not living by faith, will hate us. They hate the light, and if we try to live in the light, there will be difficulties for us. Faith, in practical, real-life terms, in our lives is often unglamorous. It's often hard and difficult. And the scripture has many other examples of those that could show that to us. Faith, we talked about Elijah calling fire down from heaven. That's an amazing moment of faith. But Elijah's faith is also shown as he is bent over trying to lap up the last few drops of the brook Kidron while it dries up because he's been praying in faith for years that it won't rain on Israel so they'll repent. And he has no food and no water until God does provide for him. It's Jeremiah sinking in the mud of a deep well that the people he's gone to, to try and take God's word to them, to save them, have thrown him into a well. And he's just sitting there sinking in the muck by himself, no one listening to him. We mentioned Mary and her faith at the beginning of this lesson. Mary, what an amazing example of someone with incredible faith. Well, Joseph and Mary also had to have great faith when they woke up in the middle of the night and had to flee for their lives and for the life of their child and get to Egypt because someone wanted to harm them. They had to trust and they had to obey and have faith 
and obey that word. And of course, faith is also Jesus being arrested in the garden and then turning around and seeing that all his companions had deserted him at that point. And then being led away, taken to several mock trials, being spit at in his face, being beaten, and then taken to the place of the skull, where the scripture tells us, there they crucified him. We are not promised that a faithful life will be an easy one. And yet still, the struggles are for our benefit, which is hard to hear because it sounds counterintuitive to what we would think. We don't want to think about struggles being good for us, and yet the scriptures, um, the spirit in the word tries to tell us, but it is. Discipline is a sign of being a son, the Hebrew writer would tell us. Uh, just a little bit over from where we've been in chapter 11. Go to chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. <clears throat> Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. We hear the word discipline, and we might quickly think about it as punishment. Think about a child needing to get some discipline. Someone that's acting wrong, you're going to get some discipline. Um, but that's not really the only way we use that word, even in our own language, you think about an Olympic athlete, you think about someone that is focused on their exercise, focused on their nutrition, someone that is training, that is someone that has discipline. They are disciplining themselves to do something amazing. And that's really the word that we find here in the Greek. Uh, it's peideue for the Greek scholars in the room. And it does not mean a correction or a rebuke or a punishment. It means a teaching moment or training or coaching. It's, it's the same word where we read about um, Paul, um, you know, being studying at the feet of Gamaliel. He was disciplined by Gamaliel. He was trained up by him. Um, it's the same word that Pilate will use talking about Jesus when he says, I will chastise him and then I'll set him free. What he's trying to say to the crowd is that I will educate him and then I'll let him go, which makes that passage even more infuriating a little bit. 
God wants us to be sons and daughters. And he does that by training us through discipline, through coaching, through educating us, through hardships. This is not just correction, but this is giving us opportunities to do what he wants us to do. Discipline is why there is a tree in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve not to eat because he loves them and he wants them to be a son and daughter to him and he gives them a chance to show discipline and obey him. Discipline is the reason God has asked Abel and Cain to bring a sacrifice to him because he wants them to obey, to discipline themselves and to start to approach a share in his holiness that the Hebrew writer tells us. It is the reason we will have struggles as well because God wants us to grow. We come to the Lord, uh, we, we sing the song, Just As I Am, and that is absolutely how God welcomes us into his kingdom. But it is not his intent to leave us as we were. He wants us to take a share in his holiness James tells us that trials grows our faith. We might think naturally like, well, the trials, it weakens my faith because it's hard and I'm crying and it's sad and my faith is dwindling. But James says, this is increasing your faith. You should be overjoyed. You should be joyous because your faith is better now than it was. And there was no way for it to get better without the hardship, without the trial. And in our hardships and struggles, we even learn new ways to trust in God. In 2 Corinthians, we've been studying 2 Corinthians in our Sunday morning um, services. Paul was writing to the church, uh, the uh, the Corinthian church. And he writes in chapter 1, starting in verse 8, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That sounds intense. And this is Paul, who again seems like another one of those giants that we just seem like, I could never attain to to have faith like Paul. But here's Paul saying, it was so bad, we were despairing of life itself. Indeed, he continues in verse 9, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But then he goes on, but there was a reason that all happened. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I don't think I'm reading incorrectly into this where Paul is saying it was really terrible in Asia. But the reason that happened is because we needed to trust in him more. We needed to learn a better lesson to trust in the one that can raise the dead. I don't think Paul was sinning with his attitudes prior to that, but he says, this is why it happened, to make us rely on him. Even Paul needed to stretch and grow in those ways. And if he did, I know that we do as well. So even though he was faithful, back to Abel, he still died. And I think we've established that that is in line with what the scripture tells us about living righteously. And yet, wonderfully, 
That is not the end of Abel in many ways because through faith, he still speaks, the Hebrew writer tells us. Back in Hebrews chapter 11, that same verse, Hebrews 11 verse 4, though he died through faith, he still speaks. And there's several ways you could interpret that. We can think about that. Just from the story that we read early on as we're reading about Cain and Abel, um, God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother? Cain lies, says, I don't know. I'm not keeping up with him. And God says, I hear his blood crying out to me from the ground. His blood is speaking to me, telling me what happened, Cain. Though we will have hardships, though we will have struggles in our faith, God hears when the faithful are wronged. He is not deaf to that. He is not deaf to our hardships. He is not blind to seeing what happens when we have sadness, when we have loss. He hears that. Even more so, the faithful leave a legacy. In Psalm 112, verse 6, the psalmist says, Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. And even in this chapter, this sermon tonight, looking at one example, the others in Hebrews chapter 11, these great individuals continue to speak to us through what they did, through the Spirit telling the writer of the epistle, talk about these men. Talk about these individuals. Tell others what they had done, how they used their faith to bring glory to God. The faithful ones will leave a legacy for others to hear. And finally, and quite literally, even after death, the faithful continue on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Back to 2 Corinthians. Paul writes in chapter 4, starting in verse 16, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Here Paul combines the second point we just finished talking about with this one, that yes, though it's hard right now, there is something eternal coming, and the faithful will take part in that. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is not kind of a nice sounding metaphor. That is not kind of an image that Paul is trying to describe. Life in Jesus is is really good. It's almost like, like eternal life. This is a literal thing. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And how many examples can we go to in Scripture where the righteous die and we see them continue on? 
We think about the rich man and Lazarus, and Lazarus dies in the street, poor, having a hard life, and we see him living on in the bosom of Abraham right after that. The thief on the cross turning to Jesus and saying, please, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus does not respond, sorry, this is it. This is all there is. Jesus says, today, you and me will be together continuing on. You'll be with me in paradise in just a little bit. And even Abel himself, who we talked about, obeying in faith, dying in faith, through faith he still speaks because he is still around in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, after continuing to talk about others like Abel and the amazing things that they've done, the Hebrew writer says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Abel is witnessing today, this tonight, with these other great individuals of faith. He still speaks because he still exists. Because he was able to obtain eternal life, I believe, which is the free gift of those who obey in faith. We have no words of Abel recorded in the scripture, but he can teach us about faith, what it means to live in faith, and what the reward for the faithful can be just about as well as anyone else you might find in the word. The righteous shall live by faith. And Abel did. And even though he died tonight, his blood still speaks to us. His life still speaks to us. There's another we often speak about when we reach the end of a lesson. And that, of course, is the Lord himself, our Savior, Jesus, who by faith obeyed the will of his Father, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, And ultimately, being crucified, dying in perfect faith and perfect obedience to the Father. Though he lives on as well. And tonight, his blood speaks. His blood speaks for those who have been immersed in baptism. Those who have put on Christ. His blood speaks atoning for the sins that we've committed in our life. For those who have not, his blood speaks to you, imploring you to do the same, to put on Christ, to be baptized into his death, to come up out of the water, and to enter into newness of life. Do you have faith tonight?
Do you have faith like Abel? Faith to obey, even in the midst of hardship, the type of faith that will allow you to continue on, even after death, on this earth. If you have any need tonight, we ask you, we would implore you, come down to the front. We will assist you however we can while we stand, while we sing together.